For as the light of the morning cometh out of the east, and shineth even unto the west, and covereth the whole earth, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Therefore sanctify yourselves, that your minds become single to God, and the days will come that you shall see him. For he will unveil his face unto you, and it shall be in his own time, and in his own way, and according to his own will. This is unveiling Jesus Christ. Hello, and welcome to Unveiling Jesus Christ, a podcast that is devoted to the study of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ through the eyes of John the Revelator in the book of Revelation. Today we're going to be talking about the book with seven seals found in Revelation chapter 5. I'm John Cassinet, and as always, I'll be your host and the purveyor of this podcast. Today, as we study Revelation chapter 5, and specifically the book with seven seals, this is another one of those important foundational things that you need to understand before you begin your studies in earnest of the Come Follow Me curriculum starting in December of this year. Obviously, one month to cover the book of Revelation is not nearly sufficient to completely understand everything about it. And so what I've been trying to do for the last several weeks is to just give you information about important topics that uh, you just won't have time to cover as you go through your studies in the month of December. But since we are kind of jumping around just a little bit, let me just give you a little bit of context for what we're going to be talking about as we come into Revelation chapter 5. So beginning with Revelation chapter 1, we know that's the prologue to the book of Revelation where John first saw his vision of the Savior and was given certain directions by the Savior, including a directive to write seven letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor, which John did in Revelation chapter 2 and 3. Those are the churches that we've been studying for the last couple weeks in the podcast that uh, hopefully you had a chance to listen to those. Now, as the end of chapter 3 comes, John receives a new vision in Revelation chapter 4, which contains a vision of the celestial paradise as it existed in 96 AD at the time of John's vision on the island of Patmos. Now, the theme of Revelation chapter 4 is the creation by God the Father and the glorification of the Father as the Creator. And as we come now into Revelation chapter 5, we're having a continuation of that same vision from Revelation chapter 4 without interruption. And we know this because as Revelation 5, 1 begins, it says, and I saw, meaning this is a transitional phrase that says what you saw in Revelation chapter 4 is now continuing into Revelation chapter 5, except the focus of the chapter is going to change. And so let me just read to you this verse, and then we'll get into a discussion about its meaning with greater particularity. So it says, And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside sealed with seven seals. Now, you won't know it because we haven't really talked about chapter 4 in any detail that the person sitting on the throne is God the Father. Now, if we 
go back and we talk about that, I can demonstrate to you why that's the case. But just you'll just have to trust me on this one until we get a chance to talk about that later on, that God the Father is the one that John is now seeing in Revelation chapter 5, verse 1, and in his right hand is this book that he describes with seven seals. That's really going to be the topic of our discussion today, and the focus of the vision of celestial paradise shifts from the glory of God the Father as the Creator to the glorification of the Lamb as the Redeemer. Now let me give you a quickie discussion about this concept of redemption. That's what this chapter is going to be talking about, and it's integrally related to this book with seven seals. But redemption is a synonym for resurrection. And so uh, when a person is redeemed physically from death, it means he's being resurrected. But there's a second aspect of redemption as well, and that is a spiritual redemption that occurs when someone who was once unclean has been redeemed by the blood of the Savior Jesus Christ so that he is then worthy and she to enter into the presence of God. And so redemption is an overcoming of physical death and it is also an overcoming of spiritual death, which basically means that a person is banished from the presence of God until that spiritual death can be overcome through the redemption that is offered and made available through the death and the atonement of Jesus Christ. So you have to have both types of redemption, and that's what this chapter is going to be focused on as we begin our discussion about the little book that John saw in the right hand of God. Now keep in mind that physical redemption is available to all people who have ever lived as mortal persons upon this earth. And so that includes everyone from celestial to terrestrial to telestial down to the mortal sons of perdition. All are redeemed from physical death through the atonement of Jesus Christ. However, sons of perdition are not redeemed from spiritual death um, because of their sins, which were unforgivable and unpardonable in this life or in the life to come. Sons of perdition, therefore, go from a condition of spiritual death in life and as disembodied spirits in the post-mortal spirit world to a condition of where they suffer a second death in the lake of fire and brimstone, which is also a synonym for outer darkness. So that's just a little bit of an overview on this concept of redemption, which is going to be the subject matter of chapter 5, and the embodiment of that theme in this book that John sees in the right hand of God. Now, the first thing that's important for you to note is that this book isn't like a book of the type that we recognize today. <clears throat> Essentially, what John was seeing in the hand of the Father was a roll or a scroll. It could be made of papyrus, but more, which is a plant-based material. But more likely, the roll that John was seeing was a parchment, which means it was made of animal skins that have been glued together and then rolled up and then sealed with these seven seals that John describes. Now, I want to give you 
a little bit of an illustration of the scroll um, by telling a story. And this is actually a little bit of a story within a story. And you're going to be, by the time you get to the end of it, you're probably going to be thinking, uh, does this story have a point? <laughs> and it does, okay? And so you just have to hang on to me because in order to understand the concept of the scroll, I'm going to tell you a little bit about something that was in, contained in my patriarchal blessing. Now, we're always careful about these kinds of things to, as we talk about our patriarchal blessings. They're obviously very sacred. They can be very personal. But some of the information, I think, can be shared uh, without uh, violating the sacredness of the uh, content of the patriarchal blessings. And so I'm going to tell you just a little bit about my as we begin this concept of what uh, the book or the role or the scroll was that John saw in the right hand of the Father. And so I probably got my patriarchal blessing <clears throat> when I was 15, 16 years old, you know, typical kind of age. And uh, in the, uh, the blessing, the uh, patriarch said that one of the things that was going to be important in my life was to meet and to date uh, LDS girls. And he even said, this should be the prime thing in your life. <laughs> and so, you know, he's talking to a 15, 16 year old kid, but so he, he hastened to add in the next sentence of my blessing, he said, not that you should court now, but this should be something that will be important to you. And uh, I tell you that part of it because this is kind of a sidetrack. This is the story within the story because I have to tell you about this girl by the name of Debbie Mitchell, uh, who I knew as a sophomore in high school, and she was the pianist for the uh, choir for our high school. And I happened to be taking choir during my sophomore year and saw that she was the pianist. And she's a very attractive young lady, and uh, I kind of had a little bit of a crush on her. And uh, so, uh, of course, I was too chicken to do anything about it. I never asked her out. I never let her know that uh, I had this crush on her. Um, but uh, after you fast forward about six or seven years later, after my sophomore year in high school, to the time that I come home from, uh, from uh, my mission in 1980, and I ran into her at the University of Wyoming, it's just a, a coincidental passing of ships. And I saw her outside a classroom and I said, well, Debbie Mitchell. And she said, well, John Cassinet." I was surprised that she even still knew my name or who I was. And so we kind of caught up a little bit and, uh, and talked. And, uh, and so I, I confessed to her that uh, back in the day when we were sophomores in choir together that uh, I had a little bit of a crush on her, but I was too chicken to ask her out on a date. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, it sounds like a pickup line. You know, as I think about it now, looking back, I'm sitting here thinking, she must have been thinking, he's trying to ask me out on a date, and this is his pickup line, because he just told me, you know, I, I had a crush on you, and I didn't have the courage to ask you out. And so, you know, this is me thinking after the fact. This is must, what, she have, what she must have been thinking. But at any rate, so as soon as I told her that I had this crush, but I just didn't have the nerve to ask her out on a date, she said, well, I'll tell you, if uh, you had asked me out on a date, I would have said yes. 
<laughs> so here I am in a quandary now. You know, all of a sudden, I've given her what probably appears to her to be a pickup line, and she's given back to me what appears to be a, I say yes, let's go out on a date line, and all of a sudden I'm in the quandary. And this takes me back to my patriarchal blessing, which says that it should be one of the important and prime things in my life to meet and date LDS girls. Well, Debbie Mitchell was not a member of the church. And so here I am, and uh, <laughs> the way that all this... Now, it didn't enter my mind at that moment what my patriarchal blessing said, and that I should run as fast as I could from this very attractive girl. Um, but, you know, it, it was just part of my persona at that point. I didn't have to think about it. I knew I couldn't ask Debbie Mitchell out on a date because uh, my purpose and the prime thing in my life was to meet and to date good LDS girls. That was the directive, and that's what the Patriarchal Blessing says. And we're going to be talking about Patriarchal Blessings a little bit more as we go along. So this may not seem to have great application right now, but it's only because we haven't gotten there yet. So patience is a virtue if you'll hang with me. That's the story within the story. Now, the story continues with what the next thing that is said in my Patriarchal Blessing because after he said uh, it would be this prime thing to meet and date good LDS girls, don't do it yet, but the day will come. And then he says, <clears throat> this is a quote, when the time comes that you should marry, you will be able to recognize and know the fair one who is held in reserve for you. Now that was kind of uh, an impressive thing to me. And I, I thought about that a lot. Uh, growing up and on my mission and when I got home and, uh, you know, thinking, I got to find this fair one who's held in reserve for me. And so now I'm going to tell you how that came about because eventually I did find her and I did recognize her. And uh, this happened probably in, it would have been about May of 1981. So I'd been at the University of Wyoming, got off my mission a year earlier, started school in the fall, and we're just coming up on the end of a semester before the summer break. <clears throat> and I was walking through the student union on my way over to ask a girl out on a date by the name of Sherry. And her roommate was uh, a girl by the name of Jan, which happens coincidentally to be the name of my wife. <laughs> <laughs> so you'll be getting, so this is where the connection is made. It's the same Jan, all right? But on that particular day, I was walking over to her apartment to ask her roommate Sherry out on a date. And so as I'm walking through the union, lo and behold, Jan is coming from the other direction. And I tell her, and we knew each other, and we're cordial and friendly, but you know, there was never any really connection there. Uh, I, I didn't have any thoughts of asking her out on a date or anything like that, um, although I found her to be very pretty uh, and still do. And uh, so at any rate, uh, I'm going and uh, I mentioned to her that uh, I'm just on her way over to her apartment to ask her roommate out on a date. She said, well, I'm so sorry, but you're going to be disappointed because she's not there. She went to uh, this Lambda Delta Sigma convention down in such and such a place. And so she's not going to be here for the whole weekend. And I said, oh, well, that's a bummer. <clears throat> and then uh, I... <laughs> You know, I, I didn't miss a beat. I said, well, would you like to go out? 
<laughs> you know, I wasn't to be denied. I was going to go out on a date with someone in that apartment, and obviously it didn't matter who. <laughs> so at any rate, I asked Jen, and uh, she kindly agreed to go out with me. I think that uh, her agreement to go with me even though she was probably, she could have felt like, well, I'm just on the rebound. I'm not going to give this guy the time of day. She didn't do that. She said, yeah, sure, no problem. And uh, I think she, looking back on it now, it probably was, she just considered it something of an obligation to do some a service project. So she hadn't done service for the week. And, you know, charity never faileth. And so uh, at any rate, all of those kindly things, she agrees to go out on a date with me. And so uh, we went to a, a movie <clears throat> that was just shown at the uh, the Union, and it was The Fiddler on the Roof, happened to be the uh, movie that we went to. And, uh, you know, naturally being uh, the gentleman that I am, I held her hand uh, during the me movie, and uh, she held my hand back. I mean, you can sometimes hold a person's hand, and they don't really hold your hand back. Um, but at any rate, I'm divulging, d digressing here just a little little bit but at any rate um, I enjoyed the date a lot all right and in fact I I was surprised at uh, how much I enjoyed being with her I because I'd known her for a year and just never kind of felt much and then all of a sudden uh, I go on one date with her I hold her hand and you know it, it's kind of like uh, Matt Damon in The Martian Remember when uh, he was getting ready, he'd been going in the rover over to the, the MAV, the, uh, um, the, the vehicle that he was going to get into to get off the surface of the planet Mars, and they were going to strip it down and catapult him off the surface of Mars, and he was going to become the fastest man traveling like uh, so many feet per second and He'd uh, uh, probably pull 12 Gs put coming off the Martian surface. And he's describing how crazy all of this is. Uh, he says, but, I, but they're telling me I'm going to be the fastest man in history. And then he says, you know, I like that. I like that a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and that's kind of how it was for me when I was uh, holding hands with uh, Jan on our first date at the uh, in Fiddler on the Rose. It's like, I liked it. I liked it a lot. <laughs> so at any rate, uh, we uh, we had a fun date, and uh, you know because we were coming up on the end of the semester. Um, I mean. I was going to go work on a ranch up in Upton, Wyoming, up in the far northeast corner. She was from Evanston in the far uh, southwestern part of the state. I mean, you, there are probably two places that you could not get more further apart than the two cities that we were going to and still be in the state of Wyoming. So they were just directly opposite diagonal corners in the, the state of Wyoming. And, you know, back in those days, you don't have the FaceTime, you don't have the, uh, it cost money to have long distance, which money we didn't have. And so, you know, we we're going to be relegated to writing letters if this thing went someplace. And so, uh, uh, I, I, I had to ask her out. And so we went out the next day or so <clears throat> on a second date we decided we'd go on a little picnic up uh, just outside of Laramie, go up in the little area where there were some nice quake and aspen trees and just have a little picnic. And uh, I was, again, Matt Damon, uh, I liked it. I liked it a lot. 
<laughs> and uh, so as we were talking, you know, I, I decided I would carve our initials in a tree and say, so it'd be JC plus JL. My, my wife's main name was Lester. And uh, so I, I carved our initials and we're just talking. And, you know, I know all the environmentalists are going to get really upset with me that I'm carving initials in a tree because they, they would scab over, you know, and then these black letters would just appear on the tree. And I, I've repented since then. I haven't done any more carvings. <laughs> so at any rate, um, all of a sudden, you know, something happened. Now, keep in mind, this is our second date. And uh, even though I liked a lot, um, I did something that I had no plan to do. It wasn't, it was probably the farthest thing from my mind. And all of a sudden, it's like the, the spirit just kind of took over and I didn't have control. You know, Joseph Smith, when he had his first vision, um, describes a situation in which he was overpowered by this evil spirit that had such an astonishing effect on him as to bind his tongue so that he could not speak. And for me, all of a sudden, it felt like somebody inside of me, this spirit was forcing me to talk because it, it just came out all of a sudden. And I was, I, I, I can't even remember, I got down on one knee, but I asked her to marry me. <laughs> It, I know it sounds crazy, but I'm. This is you ask Jen. She sometimes thinks I'm a storyteller, and I don't always get all the details right. But she will confirm that. Yeah, this all of a sudden here I am, asking uh, this uh, girl on our second date if she will marry me after I just gotten done carving our initials in a tree, <laughs> and. Uh, and I, I say that because it, you know, it, I had not expected that at all, but all of a sudden it, it just came out and I asked her to marry me and I was sincere in uh, my desire to marry her. And it, uh, it reminded me later on, of course, again, I wasn't thinking of my uh, patriarchal blessing and uh, what it said and what was going to happen. But uh, when I reflected on it, uh, I thought about those words in my blessing and how true and how dead-on accurate they were that when the time comes that you should marry, you will be able to recognize and know the fair one who is held in reserve. <clears throat> and you should just know, coincidentally, that my wife is very fair. She's she's a redhead. She has a very fair skin complexion, and uh, she always complains because uh, whenever she's out in the sun, she is always the first one to get uh, a sunburn. But uh, so that's what happened on the second date. And uh, if you want to hear the real shocker in all of this, she said yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so here we were, <clears throat> two dates in. I, I will have to add, you know, when I got home after uh, I dropped her off at her apartment and I, I got home and, uh, you know, I, I just sit there and think, what just happened? I, I didn't understand. And so I, I got down on my knees and uh, I started praying and trying to find out from my Heavenly Father, is this what I'm supposed to be doing? And I have to tell you that you know, I had one of the most uh, sacred and spiritual experiences that I'd ever had in my life. Just the, the power of the Spirit coming over me. I mean, it brought me to tears. And I'm not a guy who easily cries, but I, I was just a, an emotional uh, disaster um, 
after having felt the power of the uh, the and the influence of the spirit that came over me to confirm that uh, uh, this part of my blessing was uh, coming to fruition and to fulfillment and uh, after two dates uh, we technically were engaged um, and uh, then as I mentioned a few days later she went to Evanston I went to uh, Upton Wyoming uh, as far apart as you can get and still be in the state of Wyoming together and uh, and so all we could do is we had to start writing letters because as I said we didn't have all the electronic stuff that they have today so we started writing letters and you know every couple of days <clears throat> I'd get a letter from her and I'd be sending her a, a, a letter back and uh, one day I decided that what I wanted to do now here's where the story starts to have some relevance to uh, what we're talking about with this book with seven seals and so <clears throat> essentially um, I decided I was going to write her a letter on a roll of toilet paper and that I would take up the entire roll of toilet paper writing this uh, magnus opus right and uh, so I got started, and you have to understand, I'm kind of a, a small writer. My letters are pretty small, so this was a pretty significant undertaking, and also this was like single-ply toilet paper. It's not like the, the double-ply Charmin kind of, you know, uh, stuff that uh, you only get half the content because it's double-ply. So this is single-ply stuff here. And so I started writing. Well, you know, it takes a while. <laughs> It takes a while to write a letter of that length, even though the, the toilet paper isn't that wide. And so I'm every night, you know, after work, I'm writing and writing. And you eventually get to some point and say, I don't have anything else to write about. This is the most boring letter in the whole world. But write, 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 I would. And uh, so Jan later tells me, because I was so busy writing this letter that took me a couple of weeks to write, to write, she's she's having all of these thoughts about oh he's given up on me, and uh, you know it's uh, you, there's the old saying that uh, absence makes the heart grow fonder. Well, she's got these images of absence makes the heart you know go wherever, and uh, so not fonder but further away, and so but I'm feverishly writing because I knew it would get to her, <clears throat> and so I finally wrote, and she so finally it comes to her and she receives it and what she tells me is that it came right at a time as her family was kind of going on like a family reunion or something like that and they were camping out and so uh, she uh, got this toilet paper letter and uh, she was in her tent with her sister Sherry who's not the Sherry who's the roommate that's a different Sherry but her sister Sherry and they're they're reading this letter and so as Jan is unrolling my letter off the toilet paper roll and reading through it, Sherry is rolling it up on another stick or something like that so to keep it intact. So that, you know, I, just, <laughs> I have this vision of, of seeing them go through this process and I'm sitting there thinking, well, I, you know, if I ever did get any tear-jerking scene in my writings, the, the good news is you had something that was a tissue right there that you could wipe your eyes, but at any rate, the whole purpose of this, this story within this story, is this concept of the roll, the toilet paper roll being unrolled on one side so that you can read it and being rolled up on a stick so that it could remain intact and eventually uh, you'd 
roll it back on the original roll, which she did. And coincidentally, she eventually typed that letter up and it was like 60 pages long, single spaced uh, on a regular uh, typewriter text. So it was, a, it was a pretty healthy undertaking at the time. But the concept is this role is what you need to envision when you think about this book that had seven seals. It's not a book, it's the role. It's like the toilet paper roll that has the writing on it um, that has to, you read it and you roll it up on another stick in order to read to the end of it. Um, now, I don't want you to take the imagery too far and think that, oh, what John was saying was uh, God the Father in celestial paradise and he has a roll of toilet paper in <laughs> a roll of toilet paper in his head. All right, so it's just the, the image that I'm trying to convey. It's not a book, okay? And that's a long-winded explanation, but keep, keep the faith because we're going to come back to this concept of patriarchal blessings in a little bit. So I actually have another motive for, uh, for telling you this lengthy story about uh, what ends up uh, being essentially um, a story about a, a, a toilet paper roll. But at any rate, John sees the, the scroll in Revelation chapter 5. It's, it states that it's on the right hand of God, meaning God had his palm open, and on the palm was this scroll. The right hand, of course, is, a, is the symbolic hand of power. It's, a, it's the hand of wisdom, of divinity. It's the covenant hand. And so it's important that John points out this is the right hand because, as I mentioned, the theme of this chapter deals with this concept of redemption. And redemption comes by way of covenant. And as we enter into covenants, with our Heavenly Father, through our mediator, who is Jesus Christ and who is the Redeemer, then we have the blessings of spiritual redemption that will come to us in addition to the resurrection, which is the redemption from the dead. And so we have to understand that these things are all interrelated. So every little piece of John's imagery is intended to convey a message. And that's the message of the right hand and the book or the scroll being in the right hand of the Father. Now, the, the use of the scroll... Um, and the, the seals that we're talking about here, the seven seals, there, there's historical precedence for this. And so the, many years ago, there was a guy by the name of Yegel Yadin who found a scroll of this type in the Judean desert. And it was a legal document that had seven threads. And on those threads, it had seals with the name of the witness. And that particular scroll was dated back to the first century AD, which makes it the same time period as John's vision of this book with seven seals in the book of Revelation. We also know, historically speaking, that wills um, that the Romans would make also bore seven seals. And so if someone who was a Roman anciently had enough money to have their lawyer draft up a will for them, that the, the will would then be sealed with the same similar types of seven seals, and the will would then be stored and maintained uh, until the person died, at which point the seven seals would then be broken 
and the will would be administered. We also saw see a, a historical example of a similar type of scroll in the book of Nehemiah in chapters 9 and 10, where there was a gathering of people. Now, Nehemiah 9 and 10, the context for that particular book is the Jews have just returned from their Babylonian captivity. And so as they come back, they're having this gathering of Jews that were once exiles in Babylon, and they're going to have this covenant renewal ceremony where they're going to renew their covenants to live the law of Moses. And so as they, they enter into the, the ceremony, and as they make this covenant, it's written down, and then the Nehemiah 9 and 10 records that the leaders then place their stamp or their seal on the uh, the writing, which was the uh, the covenant that they were making to renew themselves to living the law of Moses. And so this was an attestation of the seriousness of the commitment that they were binding themselves to Jehovah once again. And uh, so you have to understand that when John describes this image of this book with seven seals, there is historical precedence for it. So he's using imagery and things that were familiar to him from his time and also from things that existed in Old Testament terminology or in terms of uh, what he knew to be the case from his own studies of things like the the book of Nehemiah. Now it's, it's the same kind of thing that we have today. So for example, uh, if somebody wanted to write a will and assuming it's not a holographic will or an, a will in in your own handwriting, in order for a will to be valid there has to be an attestation by a witness. And, uh, and so it's the same kind of thing that we do in our lives today. And another example, when I f formed my law corporation, uh, you, you can you know, send away to get a, a corporation kit, which I did, and, uh, and what they send you is, you know, you got these canned uh, articles of uh, incorporation, you got the canned minutes for your first meeting that you hold with yourself. <laughs> <laughs> You've got the canned bylaws and other this, and you just it's just all fill in the blank. But one of the things that came with this kit, and the reason they charge so much money is at least they charge you a lot of money, but they want you to think that you're actually getting something other than a bunch of fill in the blank forms. Is they send you your corporate seal, and so it's like this little pair of pliers that on the end of it, if you if you push the pliers together, it then creates a, an image or it embosses the uh, the paper that you clip and it, it raises and you can kind of feel the bumps and, you know, it says Casanet Law Corporation and all this and very impressive. But uh, I use it for absolutely nothing. <laughs> so I don't even know why I tell you this story because even though it was a corporate seal and the concept was that you could seal important documents and that it would be an attestation of authenticity of the document that I have sealed with my corporate seal. The reality of it is I never used it for anything in all the years I practiced. And as long as I had a corporation, I never used it for anything. But at any rate, that's, that's the concept, okay? And uh, that's what these seals do for this book. 
that John saw in the right hand of the Father. It is an attestation that that document is genuine, that it's authentic, and that uh, it contains a covenant because it's in the in the right hand of the Father. It contains the covenant of the Father to redeem and his exalt his children via the plan of salvation. And so it was the Father's plan from the time of the premortal existence where Jesus was presented to be the Redeemer, but it was the Father who basically is the author of the plan of salvation that began to operate long before Christ was ever chosen to redeem, be the Redeemer. So we sometimes speak of Christ being the author of salvation, and he is in the sense that his uh, acts as the Redeemer and through his atonement, he then causes the plan of salvation to be effective. And so in that sense, he is the author of, the, of, uh, he is the author of salvation. But he is not the author in the sense that he's the guy that came up with it. Remember, in that pre-mortal council where we were all present, it was the Father that said, Whom shall I send? So he had the plan, and uh, he's asking for basically volunteers as to who would become the creator, the redeemer, the judge. And of course, Jesus Christ said, here am I, send me. And then you get this other guy called Lucifer, who's like the donkey on Shrek, who keeps jumping up and down, pick me, pick me. <laughs> <laughs> right? He should never even offered himself. Once the Savior said that he was willing to be the, uh, the Redeemer, there should have never been any discussion. But of course, uh, Lucifer had another plan. He uh, offered himself, uh, and of course, he wanted to uh, take credit for everything he was going to do. And so he wanted even the, the glory of the Father. But you need to understand that this plan of salvation that is embodied in this book with seven seals, which is the plan of redemption, it's the same plan on all worlds. And so how do we know that? For example, if you look at... Uh, Moses 134, it says, and the first man of all men have I called Adam, which is many. And we so what we learn is, is that on every world that was created by the Father spiritually and then created physically by the Son, every single one of them followed the same format to the point that every single first man on every such world was even called Adam, which is many. And not to leave Eve out of this discussion, if you go to Moses chapter 4, verse 26, we learn that Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And then that verse says, quote, For thus have I, the Lord God, called the first of all women, which are many. Close quote. And so again, you have this repetition of the same plan, and it makes perfect sense. If the plan of salvation is perfect for God's children on this world, it can't be any different on any other world. It's not like they practiced on other worlds until they got it right on this world, and now, okay, now, we, now it's perfect. And uh, so it's the same plan, and it was the same plan that was initiated in uh, 
the pre-mortal existence. And, and so this is a very powerful tool. And I, I kind of talk about this a little bit because as we continue our study of the book of Revelation, um, it's important to know that these types of patterns exist. And so the, the Lord even tells us in Doctrine and Covenants section 52, 14, he says, and again, I will give unto you a pattern in all things that ye may not be deceived, for Satan is abroad in the land, and he goeth forth deceiving the nations. And so what we learn is that the Lord, who's very organized, he's very orderly, his kingdom is a kingdom of law and order, he does everything using these patterns so that uh, we're not deceived by Satan. And that what that tells us is things like things that we see in this life, are the anti-type or in the likeness of things that were in the premortal existence and vice versa. So it's a very, very powerful tool for understanding the plan of salvation as it was initially adopted by all of the uh, spirit sons and daughters of God in the premortal existence. And that plan that we call the, pre, uh, the plan of salvation is essentially the gospel of Jesus Christ. And another name for that is the new and everlasting covenant. So you'll find that in Doctrine and Covenants section 66, verse 2. Why is it new and everlasting? Well, it's new to us in this life, but it's everlasting in the sense that it's always been the same plan of salvation on all worlds that were created by Jesus Christ. And if you even want to take it one step further and kind of have a mind-blowing experience, it was everlasting on all the worlds of all generations, of all gods. And so uh, that's uh, that adds quite a bit of a dynamic, but that's the concept of having a pattern in all things. It was perfect in all generations of time and throughout all eternity. And so uh, it's important to understand also, for example, that uh, we see this in uh, Abraham chapter 3, verse 26, that's talking about the spirits, these premortal spirits who kept their first estate and the fact that they would be added upon. And then it says, they who keep their second estate shall have glory added upon their heads forever and ever. And so these things all build upon each other, and this plan that was uh, introduced to us in the premortal existence has always existed and is the plan that is incorporated into this book with seven seals and is a discussion of how God redeems and resurrects his children. It, uh, it pertains to God's covenants with mankind. And so those who are exaltation worthy will have the ability to reign with Christ on earth during the millennium and forever. Now, one of the things that the prophet Joseph Smith has uh, helped us with is understanding in more concrete terms the meaning of this book with seven seals. And so Doctrine and Covenants section 77 contains a series of questions that Joseph Smith was essentially able to ask the Lord what's the meaning of this as it relates specifically to various images and symbols that can be found in the book of Revelation. It's the uh, frequently asked questions for the, uh, for the book of Revelation. But at any rate, in, in section 77, verse 6, Joseph Smith was able to ask this question and receive this answer. The question is, 
What are we to understand by the book which John saw, which was sealed on the back with seven seals? And the answer given is, <clears throat> we are to understand that it contains the revealed will, mystery, and the works of God, the hidden things of his economy concerning this earth during the 7,000 years of its continuance or its temporal existence. Close quote. So there we have it. We have the, uh, the answer to what this book contends, which essentially is what I have been describing to you. When we talk about the, the will, the mysteries, and the works of God, we're talking about his salvation and exaltation of his children and how that occurs during the earth's 7,000-year temporal existence. And so when we talk about the temporal existence of the earth, we're essentially talking about the period of time since the fall of Adam through the end of the earth, which is the death of the earth at the end of the millennium, and the celestialization of the earth. So when we think of in terms of temporal things, uh, we think about death. In other words, so the temporal existence of this earth ends when there is no more death and nothing is temporal. Everything at that point is spiritual and that condition we arrive at only after the death of this earth and the celestialization of this earth. And so what we learn from these visions of Joseph Smith is that essentially the temporal history of the earth from the fall of Adam until its death is only going to be 7,000 years. Now this is going to present a lot of heartburn to the evolutionists in the room because uh, they're going to be telling you that uh, this earth has existed for millions of years um, and what we learn from the revelations in the Doctrine and Covenants is well no that's not quite exactly right. The earth is very young and I'm I'm not going to get into uh, a big discussion. I probably will at some point because it's a fascinating subject to me about this concept of old earth versus young earth and uh, things like that. But you know the the evolutionists and geologists in general have this concept that uh, the Earth's current condition can be explained through this concept of uniformitarianism, which means that essentially things in the history of the Earth have kind of proceeded and progressed in a uniform kind of way to explain the geological uh, conditions that we see on the Earth today um, as explained through millions of years of evolutionary change. And uh, all I have to do is I have to read the uh, the third book of Nephi for less than 10 or 15 minutes and all of the uh, the the earthquakes and the disasters and everything that caused that entire landscape and an entire hemisphere to be completely changed and deformed in the matter of three hours and uh, I don't have a problem with the concept of a young earth and the power of God to uh, change things in a great big hurry. So at any rate, that's uh, I'm going to get off my uh, my evolutionary soapbox and, and get back to our discussion. But we know that from Doctrine and Covenants section 77, verse 7, each seal represents a thousand-year period of time. Now, it's important to observe that the 7,000-year periods in the book of Revelation are not necessarily the same 
as the seven major gospel dispensations that we sometimes talk about in the church. And so if you want to identify the seven gospel dispensations, they would include the the dispensations of Adam and Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Moses, Jesus Christ, and then finally Joseph Smith. Now, there's also some other subdivisions within these dispensations. So, for example, you had gospel dispensations among the Jaredites. You had gospel dispensations among the uh, the Lehite colonies. You have gospel dispensations among the lost ten tribes of Israel. So these are sort of sub-dispensations to the seven major sub-dispensations sub, uh, that uh, we talk about. The, the word or the concept of a dispensation comes from the word dispense which is to distribute uh, anew the gospel of Jesus Christ, typically due to apostasy that has occurred and a falling away from the uh, truths of the gospel. Now, having said that, the seven seals or the 7,000-year periods of time are not the same as the seven gospel dispensations. There is and tends to be a fair amount of overlap between them. For So, for example, you have Adam and his dispensation. We know that he lived until he was 927 years old, and that would uh, take you roughly from about 4,000 to 3,000 B.C. And so there were also 10 generations of time from the time of Adam until the time of Noah. And this this lines up pretty closely with the chronology that was developed by a bishop by the name of uh, Bishop Usher, who was the Archbishop of Ireland for about 30 years from uh, 1581 through 1656 uh, AD. And uh, Bishop Usher <clears throat> is best known for his chronology, uh, looking at the the book of uh, Revelation, but also a lot of other historical documents, the things that written by the church fathers, the the Mishnah and the Talmud, and all of these Jewish writings and Israelite writings, and he went back through that in in very great detail and created this chronology that led him to conclude that the creation occurred at 4004 B.C. Now we would change that slightly and say. Uh, that we would agree with that uh, dating, generally speaking, except that we wouldn't uh, go all the way back to the creation of the earth because we don't know how much time Adam actually spent in the Garden of Eden um, with Eve. And so what we will say and what we tend to agree with as Latter-day Saints with Bishop Usher is that the fall of Adam would have occurred at that time period or roughly 4,000 years before the time of Christ. And so if you have Adam living almost 1,000 years from the year 4,000 to 3,000, that coincides almost exactly with the first seal that covers the first 1,000 years of the earth's temporal existence. Um, And the other reason why we would date this from the fall of Adam, because I defined for you a moment ago what temporal means, and temporal is kind of synonymous with death. And until the fall of Adam, we didn't have any death on this earth because everything was in an immortal condition until the fall. And so that's when death enters the, uh, the, the world, both spiritual death 
and temporal death, as I've kind of explained previously. Now, the, the next dispensation after Adam, which theoretically runs from about 3000 to 2000 BC, would have been the time of Enoch. And uh, Enoch uh, lived during that period of time. Um, he took over as the head of the gospel dispensation uh, after Adam. The flood occurred in, according to Bishop Usher's chronology, in 2348 BC. So that, that still kind of fits. Things start going a little bit different when you go from the dispensation of Noah, which would have been the third dispensation to Adam, and it, it, it starts to break down a little bit. So, you know, they can be a couple hundred years off in differences in terms of uh, their uh, chronology, but they, they do tend to over lap a fair amount, but they aren't the same thing, and you shouldn't construe the uh, seven seals with the uh, seven gospel dispensations. Now, the next thing that we learn about with regard to this book that was in the hand of the Father, it tells us specifically that it had writing on both sides of the parchment or the scroll. And so, uh, you know, thinking back to my uh, toilet paper roll, uh, it was not written on both sides. <laughs> you know, it was it was essentially a single ply uh, toilet paper. So, I mean, it would have been very difficult to do anyway. But uh, uh, with John's book, however, uh, it's written on both sides. And again, there's some historical precedent for this, uh, both scripturally and in terms of uh, discoveries that have been made. For example, if you go back to Ezekiel chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, there, he describes a similar role that he had as part of a vision that tells us also that it had writing on both sides of the material. And this particular record that Ezekiel was describing is a record of the lamentations, the mourning, and the woe um, that were being experienced by the, uh, the Jewish people who had been taken captive into Babylon. And so when you have <clears throat> writing of this type, that is on both sides of the record. It essentially signifies that it is a full and complete record. And in the context of the book with seven seals, what it means is it contains a full and complete record of God's dealings on earth with regard to the salvation and redemption of mankind. And so these particular types of documents have been discovered, but they're very rare. They're also called opistographs. And so if you ever wonder uh, what the final Jeopardy question is going to be um, about uh, writings that uh, have writing on both sides of the document, you need to answer uh, what is an opistograph because that's the correct answer. So on one side, uh, for most types of documents where they're only written on one side, the writing side is called the recto, which has the horizontal fibers on a papyrus that makes it fairly easy to write on. Uh, the recto on the other side of it would be more rough, and so typically you wouldn't write on it because it makes for a pretty messy print. And so typically they're not written on both sides, um, but in the case of John's vision, it's written on both sides, and that sends a message to us about what the imagery conveys that you wouldn't otherwise think about. 
So God the Father <clears throat> has this very rare book in his hand because essentially he ultimately is the one who controls the earth's history and the redemption of all his children. Now he of course did that through the, uh, the atonement of Jesus Christ, but at the end of the day, God the Father is the author of the plan of salvation. He's ultimately the one that introduced it, that implemented it, and accepted his son, Jesus Christ, to be the implementer of that plan. But he owns it, and that's why he's the guy that has the, uh, the scroll in his right hand. Now, <clears throat> the concept of having this scroll sealed has its own message because the seals, uh, their presence on the roll, of course, prevented the unauthorized or premature disclosure of the contents of the documents, both with regard to this and just in general. We, we have the same kind of principle today with shipping companies who are shipping these containers. And uh, next time you uh, pass a big rig on the highway, take a look and see if it contains a seal on the latches that uh, secure the container. Because a lot of times, if you look carefully on where they latch these containers, you'll see this little metal object that's kind of hanging down. The place where you might put a, uh, a lock, instead of a lock, uh, you'll see this little metal strip. And what those are, those are the shipping seals. They can be made of bolts or just metal strips. Some of them are simply made of plastic. But essentially, if someone tries to open the container, they can only do it by breaking the seal. Uh, and so the seal then, its presence, when you start at point A, and by the time you get to point B, if the, if the seal is still intact, then you know that the contents of the container have not been tampered with. And so that's the concept of what's being conveyed with this uh, scroll that has these seals. It is evidence that there has been no tampering with the contents of the scroll. So we don't have this interloper by the name of Lucifer coming in and trying to mess things up. We, have, we can have confidence that the plan of salvation, this uh, the plan of redemption contained within this scroll that has these seven seals has not been tampered with by anybody, let alone Lucifer. All right. So now the seals themselves were made with a signet ring or other object. And so to, to give you <clears throat> an idea of how this occurs, the, the best imagery I can use is if, if you think about the movie Ben-Hur with Charlton Heston. It was a 1959 movie. It had it won like 11 Academy Awards, including the, be the Best Picture and everything like that. But in one of the scenes from Ben-Hur, you'll remember that there was a sheikh by the name of Idaram who goes to Masala, who's the commander of the Antonia Fortress. And Ben-Hur and Masala, of course, were childhood friends. And Masala, eventually a Roman, rises to be the tribune at the Antonia Fortress, and Sheik Iderim is somebody that Ben-Hur has made, and he owns this magnificent group of white horses that are going to race in the uh, in the big uh, uh, track there in uh, Jerusalem. And so the Sheikh shows up where all the Romans are kind of gathered around the pool, hanging out, you know, uh, lathering themselves up with uh, oils and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> 
<laughs> you know, and so he's coming to make a bet with Masala. He's going to bet Ben-Hur racing with the Sheikh's white Arabian beauties against Masala and his uh, fabulous black horses. And so um, they're sitting there talking about uh, what are the odds. And so Masala finally gives the Sheikh four to one odds. And then they ask, what's the Sheikh's wager? And his wager is, I will bet 1,000 talents. And everybody, I mean, stone cold silence, right? It's like, oh, 1,000 talents. I mean, that's a lot of money. And uh, at four to one odds, if uh, Ben-Hur wins, uh, he's going to get 4,000 talents back. Uh, and so, uh, and uh, the Sheikh kind of is uh, probing and prodding uh, Masala a little bit. Well, you don't, you're uh, afraid to race against uh, Ben-Hur, a Jew? And uh, Masala, you know, says some derogatory things and finally accepts the wager. And then Masala in order to accept the wager, remember, he has this signet ring, a ring on his hand that has a signet in it. And a signet is just kind of something that you will create an, an image because it's been engraved with some kind of design. And so he pounds his hand on the little clay tablet that the sheikh had to confirm, we have a deal. All right. And so that's the concept of how you use a signet on a ring or from some other object to create the seals that John was seeing on the uh, book of Revel on the book with seven seals a similar kind of thing you see if you're scarlet pimpernel fans <laughs> This was a movie from 1982 uh, dealing with the French Revolution and uh, the uh, band of the Scarlet Pimpernel trying to save aristocrats from the uh, revolutionaries. And so Sir Percy Blakeney uh, is in a scene in that movie where he's disclosing the secret fact that he is the Scarlet Pimpernel to Armand Saint-Just. And in order to disclose this to Armand, um, Scar Percy takes a, a ring off of his uh, right pinky and he kind of turns the top of the ring around so that it reveals a signet on the bottom of the ring and now shown on the top of a scarlet pimpernel. And so if he were to use that ring to create his mark by embossing it into a wax or clay, you'd get the image of a scarlet pimpernel. Again, it's a signet. And that's that's the kind of thing that uh, John was seeing um, on this book that had seven seals. The, the seal or the signet, it was essentially kind of the, like the notary public of the ancient worlds. And what I mean by that is today, if we want to signify the authenticity of a document and to make sure that it has some type of legal protection, we go and we sign a document, we take our driver's license down to the notary public and they confirm and countersign our document with us, um, indicating that um, the document is genuine. And so the, the seals that we're talking about through the use of these signets and uh, everything is similar to kind of like our modern day um, notary public. And so um, if we then go from this concept of how it protects the authenticity and genuineness of the document, it also 
can be used to prove the identity of the owner. Again, because this contains the seals uh, of the father, it identifies him as the owner of the contents, which are ultimately the plan of salvation and plan of redemption. Now, the fact that there are seven seals also has symbolic meaning. It means that the content of the book is complete and perfect. And I've in a prior podcast uh, on October 29th, for example, I talked about this concept of numbers and symbols and uh, how they're used in the book of Revelation. And from that podcast, you'll know that the number seven is the most used book in all of scripture and uh, is symbolic of completeness and perfection. And so that's why this particular document that John is seeing had seven seals. It's also historically with legal documents such as wills among the Romans, it had to have seven seals, meaning it was tied together with flaxen string or some kind of twine. And then that twine was essentially sealed where you would knot them together. You'd put a piece of clay on it, maybe some type of wax, but more likely some type of soft clay that would harden over time. And so you emboss that with the signet ring, putting the seal in each of the clay pieces. And that was done seven times in the case of a Roman will to authenticate and validate the content of the will of the will. Now, <clears throat> if the Roman documents were dealing with money, by contrast, they would only have five seals as opposed to the seven seals for a legal document like a will. Now, the, the thing that's a little bit unusual about this book with seven seals in Revelation 5.1 is that each seal secured a separate parchment that was rolled on the same scroll. And so what that means is essentially, first of all, keep in mind that you had the uh, the parchment that was all glued together in, in a, a long kind of uh, format. And, uh, and so as you roll it up, you have this concept that uh, you have seven seals on it. So what we're going to show you, for those of you who are... Um, watching the podcast on YouTube, I'm going to put up an image right now of what a scroll with seven seals would look like as we have been describing here. And so on this particular image, and I'll do my best to describe it for those of you who are just uh, audio fans only, um, you can see the, the scroll, you have the seven seals um, with the flaxen cords and the clay that has some type of a uh, impression made from either a ring or some type of object. And uh, the problem with, with this particular version that we're looking at right now is even though it has the seven seals, you can see that, first of all, it doesn't identify this as an opistograph because we don't see any writing on the outside of the scroll, which they should if this were uh, something that uh, what, what John would have been seeing. The other problem with it is, you can see from this image that in order to open any portion of the parchment, you have to basically remove all seven seals together at the same time. But the type of parchment seals that John was talking about is you had the ability to open one portion of the scroll without opening the other six. And so I'm going to put up a second uh, photo up on the screen here. 
And uh, this one gives a little bit better of an idea of what the imagery is that we're talking about because you can see that all of the seals are bunched up toward the top of the document. Uh, and in this particular vision, uh, we're seeing that it's being held in the hand of the Father. We see another hand off on the uh, left of the side of the uh, image where essentially the Father is about to hand off the scroll into the hand of another person. So uh, the second uh, hand, we're not going to talk about that right now, but uh, essentially we're going to come to learn that that would be the the uh, the Savior. It wouldn't be... Uh, uh, John, who's receiving this from the Father, the Savior is going to receive it. Um, but at any rate, getting back to the scroll itself, you can see that this one has the writing, and it appears to be writing that is on both sides of the document. In other words, we're seeing the outside of the scroll that has the writing of it, and the assumption is, is that the writing would also be on the inside of it. You can also see that what appears to be the situation is you can remove that first seal on the bottom of the roll and that would allow a certain portion of it to open and you can read the content of the first seal without actually loosing the other six seals that still remain. And uh, not surprisingly, um, scrolls of this type have actually been found. So what John is seeing against is an image of something that would otherwise be familiar to him. And uh, once you get through each of the uh, seven seals, then what is revealed at the end of the day is the complete will, mysteries, and works of God that have been executed, but we see them in the book of Revelation being executed one seal at a time. And so uh, the person who opens the, uh, the book and reveals the content is basically the one who is executing God's will, which in this case is Jesus Christ. Uh, and in other words, he's basically fulfilling all of God's covenants that God has made with his righteous children. Okay, so that gets us through verse 1, Revelation 5, 1. Now, I want to uh, try, and I'll try and move a little bit more quickly <clears throat> through uh, each of the succeeding verses that describe this book with seven seals. So we now begin with Revelation 5, 2, where John said, I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof. It's kind of interesting that John both saw and heard this strong angel, and uh, because this is a strong angel, we have to distinguish this angel from one who is distinguished from other angels of lesser rank. So essentially, what we learn from this is that in heaven, there is a hierarchy of angels. Some of them are strong, some of them are more weak, uh, but they are angels of rank. And uh, so it is a strong angel who is asking who's worthy to remove the seals. Now, I think you already kind of have a sense of who the answer is going to be. Um, but uh, at this point in time, the question is posed. And that's, a, that's not an atypical kind of Hebraism where you ask a question almost rhetorically that you really already know the answer to. But in the case of John, it turns out 
he wasn't really getting the full essence or understanding of what this book was all about. And so uh, in a minute, we're going to be learning that he started crying and weeping because he couldn't figure out who was going to be able to open this book that contained all of these covenants and promises that God made to his children <clears throat> and to redeem them. And so uh, the, the, in the Greek, the, uh, the strong, the word strong comes from the word ischuros, which means strong, mighty, or powerful. And its presence in this particular verse is essentially an invitation or call to find someone who had the moral quality and authority to both open the book and to loose the seven seals. And it's not unlike the, uh, the pre-mortal council again, where the father presented the plan of salvation and then asks in Abraham 3, verse 27, whom shall I send? And so both inquiries are sought to identify one who was worthy to be both a creator and a redeemer, one who would be the beginning and the end, and uh, one who could open the book of Earth's history with both the power to create and the power to redeem. Now, obviously, you and I already know that Christ is that person who would be worthy. And uh, so from our second photograph, he's the guy with his hand being held out to receive the book with seven seals from the father who had it in the palm of his hand seated on the throne. Now, if you come then to Revelation chapter 5, verse 3, it says, No man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And so when John is asked the question, or the question is asked, who's worthy, as John's kind of looking around saying, well, I don't know. I'm looking in the heavens. I'm looking in the earth. I'm looking under the... In other words, he looked thoroughly. <laughs> it's like when you're a kid and you lose your shoe. You have to look under the bed. You got to look on the bed. You got to look everywhere you can possibly look, trying to find what you have lost. What's kind of interesting is the idea of heaven, earth, and under the earth describes the universality of the situation that we're talking about here. So in heaven, you have resurrected persons. On earth, you have mortal persons. Under the earth, you have the spirits of the dead. And so it's like, it's like John saying, I looked in, the, uh, in heaven, I looked on earth, I looked at the post-mortal spirit world, and all the spirits, of the, and nobody was worthy to open this book. And the reason why he didn't find any person who was worthy to open is because a person, meaning a person like you and me, uh, who are sinful and who are not the Savior and who are not gods, don't have the ability to carry out the works and the designs and the purposes, meaning the redemptive purposes of God. And so that's why John, looking around, he couldn't find anyone that could uh, to carry this out. And so we then come to Revelation chapter 5, verse 4, that records that John wept much because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. I mean, that's how serious this is. They, he couldn't even find somebody who was even worthy to look upon it, let alone to open the book and to read the content, and ultimately the symbol, symbolism means 
to carry it out. And so John is weeping because of this vision that he's having because he can't find anybody to do the job. And it's because only a God could do so and only Christ as a God um, could do it. And uh, everybody else is incapable of redeeming themselves. But because he was sinless and required no redemption for anything, both physically and spiritually, he was the one who was empowered to do it. And so then we come to Revelation chapter 5, verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, Weep not, behold, the Lamb of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. So this, the 24 elders is, is something that come up in Revelation 4. So we haven't covered that yet, and I'm not going to spend any time identifying who those people are because we'll, we'll get to it eventually. The important point is he says, hey, don't cry. We got it covered because uh, we have the lion of the tribe of Judah who's going to be the one who is empowered to open the seven seals. And so we have to ask ourselves, okay, who's the lion of the tribe of Judah? Now, I've already told you it's Jesus Christ. So I've already, I didn't warn you about the spoiler alert, uh, but we know that Jesus is the one who's empowered to open it. So guess what? He's got to be the lion of the tribe of Judah. But the question is, why is he called the lion of the tribe of Judah? And essentially it describes his power and majesty to rule much like a lion who is the king of the beasts, okay? But it's more than that, because Judah, of course, was one of the 12 sons of Jacob who was renamed uh, Israel. And so we know that Christ was born through Judah's lineage. And so that's why we refer to him as a lion, meaning someone who is kingly uh, and majestic, and also of the tribe of Judah, uh, Christ qualifies because he is of that lineage, both through his mother Mary and through his ostensible father Joseph. Now the lion was also the emblem for the tribe of Judah. And so it's like when we say it's the emblem, it's like the lion is the mascot for uh, the, the tribe of Judah. So if Judah was playing a soccer game against, or a football game against uh, someone like uh, Reuben, <laughs> you know, Judah would show up, his mascot would show up as a lion, and Reuben would have his own mascot, but I don't know who it is because I just said that. But if, for example, if, it, if they were playing the uh, Joseph team, if Joseph would show up, then Joseph would show up with his mascot, which would be the bullock or like a, a bull. Okay, That's his emblem, uh, and that's his mascot. And so all of these things about these emblems and, uh, and Judah being uh, the lion um, all stems from, you got it, the patriarchal blessing that Judah received from his father um, Israel or Jacob as recorded in Genesis 49 verses 9 and 10. So I warned you and I promised you that there would be some further discussions about patriarchal blessings and, and here it is. I didn't want to disappoint. So what we find in these verses, it says, Judah is a lion's whelp from the prey, my son. Thou art gone up. He stooped down, he couched as a lion, 
and as an old lion, who shall rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Now that's kind of a mouthful right there. And so I'm not going to spend too much time, but let's break it down just a little bit. Because first of all, it refers to Judah as a lion's whelp. Well, if you go to the dictionary and uh, you look up whelp and what is the meaning of a whelp, well, it actually means a puppy. (laughs) And so essentially you have to scratch your head on this one a little bit because it sounds like, okay, so Judah is a lion's puppy. And there's just something about that that doesn't quite sit right. Am I, are, you, are you feeling me? <laughs> and so what, what happens is, and what's helpful is, uh, at the time that the uh, King James Version of the Bible was translated back in 1611, that's where this phrase comes from. They're the ones that had to decide, how are we going to translate this from the old Hebrew language? And they're the ones that put in this concept of the lion's whelp. Well, at the time that they did that translation back in 1611, they included marginal notes, which essentially are like translator insights that led them to choose particular words. So they're like these little explanatory comments in the margins of the original manuscripts from the King James Bible that help us understand what the method of their madness was when they were translating the King James Version from ancient Hebrew and also from the Greek version in the New Testament. And so what you have at the time that that translation was done, you have over 8,000 margin notes that exist in the King James Version of the Bible. 6,600 of them roughly are in the Old Testament. You have another 1,000 or so in the apocryphal books that are found in the New Testament for like the Catholic Bible. And then you have another 700 plus, almost 800 that can be found in the, uh, the New Testament. So if you go to the marginal notes, from uh, way back in 1611, what you'll find from the marginal notes is, even though they used the lion's whelp, which we would say is like a puppy today, the margin notes indicate that it's an indication that uh, Judah was uh, to be numbered among the sons of pride. It's the the idea that he was courageous, he was generous, uh, he was strong, he would be victorious over his enemies. So that's what's embodied in this concept that Judah is a lion's whelp that then eventually translates into what John is describing in the book of Revelation with the book of seven, with this book that had seven seals when it describes the fact that uh, it could be opened by the lion of the tribe of Judah. That's the essence of what is being communicated to us in this context. Now, the other thing that uh, <clears throat> was contained in uh, Judah's uh, patriarchal blessing was this promise that Judah would be the lineage that would rule Israel until the coming of Shiloh. Now, the word Shiloh is also kind of an interesting word because it's used about 33 different times in the Old Testament, but most of those are in reference to a city in the tribal lands of Ephraim, which was the temporary place where the Ark of Covenant 
the Ark of the Covenant was kept until the time when the uh, the Temple of Solomon was built, and the the Ark was then brought to uh, to Jerusalem, and uh, it's, it's actually brought to before the temple itself was constructed, but it remained in uh, the uh, the territorial area of Ephraim at Shiloh for a long period of time, and it's located roughly about. 35 miles north and a little bit east of Jerusalem in uh, Samaria. And so uh, the idea that Shiloh is coming, however, doesn't, when Judah was given his patriarchal blessing, it doesn't have reference to moving the Ark of the Covenant from Shiloh down to Jerusalem that became its permanent place of occupation course until Nebuchadnezzar came along and destroyed the temple in 587 when they took the ark away and it's been gone ever since but that's another story uh, we're, so we're not going to go down that road but at any rate so what Shiloh has reference to in the patriarchal blessing of Judah is uh, the coming of Jesus Christ so Shiloh is a name that uh, is given to Jesus Christ the word itself comes from uh, the, a root word word called shalah, which means to be at peace. And so from this root word, we have words like shalom uh, that is used as a Jewish greeting, meaning peace be unto you. A similar kind of <clears throat> word exists in, in Arabic, salam, which is also an Arabic greeting. Solomon's name also comes from the same root word, and his name means peaceful. And so it's not surprising that the city of Jerusalem, Jerusalem also comes from that same root word. And so Jerusalem, the meaning of the name Jerusalem means it's the foundation or city of peace. And so uh, it comes from two words, shalom on the end, which of course means peace or the city of peace, and yara, which means he threw or cast. Okay, that's how we come up with Jerusalem today. It's Jerusalem, and you have essentially he threw or cast this piece. Um, and at the time of Melchizedek, they only had they didn't have the Yara yet. <laughs> All they had was Salem or Shalom. So the uh, in the time of uh, Melchizedek, it was uh, the city of Salem or the city of peace. But essentially, Shiloh applies as a name to Christ because he is the Prince of Peace. Okay, so now here's, here's where it gets kind of interesting because Judah, in his patriarchal blessing, has been promised the right of rulership in all of the house of Israel until Shiloh comes. Shiloh bring principally and primarily the first coming of Jesus Christ. So in other words, until Christ first comes, Judah, you're going to have the right to rule and lead the, the, all of the tribes of Israel. And to a certain extent, since Jesus was ultimately of the tribe of Judah and is the ultimate government and governor, um, the, the rights of Judah to rule in Israel never do go away, even though the 
promised blessing to the uh, by primogeniture of leadership and rulership eventually went to Joseph down to Ephraim and so but ultimately Judah retains this right through the embodiment of Jesus Christ now so we know all that but what's interesting is uh, Judah got his patriarchal blessing and if he's sitting there reading it saying hey this says that I'm supposed to be the uh, the leader and the head of all the tribes until Shiloh comes uh, that is meaning the coming of Christ and uh, that really didn't happen for a long long time and uh, what you have is for example when uh, the tribes of Israel were held captive in Egypt for many years about 400 years when they finally come out of uh, Egypt it's not a, a Tri a tribal man from the tribe of Judah that is leading them, it's Moses. And Moses was of the tribe of Levi, all right? So, you know, Judah's got to be sitting there kind of scratching and say, well, what happened to these promises in my patriarchal blessing? They're, they're apparently not coming true. And so then we get, <clears throat> after the uh, the tribes entered the uh, the land of promise, they were initially kind of ruled by judges, and all of these judges tended to be all over the map. You had them coming from, from different tribes, and Judah was not the head of them. And then finally, when the Israelites, did the, the Lord, they demanded of the Lord, we want a king. And so the Lord gave them King Saul, who was the first king of, of Israel. Well, guess what? Saul is not from the tribe of Judah. He was a Benjaminite. And so, again, Judah's got to be sitting there asking himself, how come uh, I have all of these blessings promised in my patriarchal blessing that my lineage would have the right of rulership in the house of Israel until the coming of Jesus Christ? And none of it seems to be coming true. Now, I point this out because isn't this a dilemma that sometimes we all feel in our lives? You know, for, for me and growing up with my blessing, you know, I was just going along and then all of a sudden one day, wham, it's fulfilled. I mean, I recognized the fair one that was held in reserve to me and all of a sudden you see the, the fulfillment of the blessing. And that, that must have been a little bit like Judah was feeling with regard to his promise. Um, but then after uh, King Saul, the second king of Israel is none other than David. And uh, David was of the tribe of Judah, and uh, he then became the ultimate leader and ruler of a united Israel, because up until that time, these tribes were all just kind of a conglomeration of, uh, of troops and tribes that kind of had their own ideas and uh, never were really truly united. But David united them, and so the uh, patriarchal blessing of uh, Judah was fulfilled, including that portion of the blessing that then went on to explain that the person who would have the power to uh, open the book with seven seals was also of the root of David. That also was fulfilled, of course, by Jesus Christ, who was born into the royal line of David as the second king of Israel. And so Christ is a branch in David's family tree. And Christ is also called the root of David because before the Savior was born, long before David became the king, Jesus as Jehovah 
was already his Lord. And so Jesus is both the, a branch in David's tree as of the time that he was born in mortality, but he is also a root of David um, because he was uh, David's uh, God uh, in the form or in the person of Jehovah. And so that makes him both the, uh, the root or source of spiritual nourishment to his people. And so what we finally learn is that Christ, who is the lion of the tribe of Judah, Christ, who is the root of David, he prevailed to open the book with seven seals. And how did he prevail? He prevailed through his atonement because he conquered death, uh, physical death. He conquered hell, meaning uh, the uh, the hell that... Uh, Create, that causes people to have spiritual alienation from God or banishment from the presence of God. He overcame that subject to the conditions of repentance and other things like this, but he made redemption possible for all creation and thus he's the one <clears throat> who is empowered to loose the seven seals. And uh, the seven seals reveal the works of Jesus Christ in uh, saving all of God's uh, spirit children, and uh, all of this was made possible through the uh, successful atonement of Jesus Christ. This is the message that uh, permeates the uh, book of Revelation. This is the, the true unveiling of Jesus Christ that is embodied in this book with seven seals. And so as we go through our study of the book of Revelation, and each of these seven seals are going to be opened to the uh, to the mysteries being uh, revealed and uh, unveiled before our faces. Ultimately, I think what you have to always re remember and appreciate that these things are the unveiling of Jesus Christ. Every time a seal is open, it's going to be unveiling a different aspect and attribute of the Savior Jesus Christ and what he has done for each of us in carrying out the works and the designs and the purposes of God as reflected in this book with seven seals. So as, as I conclude today, I, I'd just like to thank a couple of people who've been helping out with making sure that these podcasts are up and running and doing the things that they're supposed to do, including Elias James with uh, Melody Rose uh, Media, who's helping me make sure the uh, the sound volumes are correct. And I, I can't blame him for any of the bad content and the uhs and the clearing my throat and <laughs> stuff like that. Uh, but uh, he, he's helped me and I appreciate it very much. And then I have uh, Jenna Daly of Peak Data Consultants who helps out with putting up the graphics and uh, making sure that this gets posted in the way it's supposed to be. So so I thank you for listening and uh, I thank them. And uh, I thank you also for those of you who are willing to um, give a shout out and let other people know that uh, this podcast exists. I, I appreciate you uh, sharing it with others. And finally, let me just also say as we're approaching um, Thanksgiving, um, as you know, I've, I've written a book uh, that is called The Doctrinal Commentary of the Book of Revelation, Unveiling Jesus Christ. And with Thanksgiving coming up and with your studies of the Book of Revelation approaching, I just want to uh, encourage you and let you know that this uh, book contains a lot of the very information that I'm sharing with you in this podcast. And for Black Friday and Cyber Monday, we'll be having a 
20% off sale. If you go to my website at unveilingjesuschrist.com, the, the, uh, the codes to get that 40% off will show up and uh, you can do that through Black Friday. And if you do it, you should have the book in hand before you begin your studies for the book of Revelation as part of the uh, Come Follow Me curriculum. So uh, I hope you'll take advantage of that. Um, this is kind of an advertisement, I'm sorry, but it's really a, a non-advertisement because what I'm telling you, don't order the book now. <laughs> wait till Black Friday. So it's a non-advertisement for now until Black Friday uh, happens to come up. So next week as we continue with the podcast, um, I'm going to do the final introductory section for the book of Revelation before your Come Follow Me lessons kick in on December 10. And we're going to be talking about the 70 weeks prophecy that's found in the book of Daniel, specifically Daniel chapter 9 verses 24 through 27. It's only four verses but it packs a punch and I've always felt like you can't really understand the book of Revelation if you don't also understand the prophecies of Daniel. And so that's one of these, again, introductory sessions that will help tie things together as you begin your more in-depth studies of the book of Revelation in December. So I'm looking forward to being with you uh, next week as we dive into the book of Daniel and um, I'll see you then. Thanks.